Romans chapter 2 this morning. One of the points of the book of Romans is one of the lines we just sang in that second verse, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. So the, the lost, the most lost person that you can imagine, the most lost person that you feel like uh, is not turned away from God once you believe. And that's the, the message of the book of Romans, that there is this great gospel of Jesus Christ that is available to all who will believe. God will not turn anyone away who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Well, in chapter 1, the Jews were listening in to the reading of this letter that Paul had written to the Romans, and they likely are agreeing wholeheartedly, Yes, Paul, the pagan Gentiles do stand condemned before you. Yes, they are deserving of your condemnation. But we are not like they. We follow the Scriptures. And here in chapter 2, in verse 1, Paul points his loaded revolver of conviction at the Jews. And he wants to show all religious people who look at the pagans and condemn them that they are at the same time condemning themselves. That we have all sinned against God. We have not honored Him as God or given thanks. And therefore, we, like they, these vilest offenders in chapter 1, are under the wrath of God as well. Now, some of you might object, well, yeah, that might be true of the Jews, but that's not talking about me. Or that Those sins in chapter 1, those might be talking about the vile pagans in our culture, but that's not talking about me. I've gone to church since I was small. I read my Bible. I help the poor. I am much better than the people described in chapter 1. And if that's the way that you think, then chapter 2 is for you. Because here, Paul wants to show that the self-righteous are just as condemned before God as the clearly unrighteous. No one doubts these sins in chapter 1 are sin. But the truth is that the self-righteous are just as condemned. And if we think that the the excuse of more good works, having more good works than bad works, is going to hold up in the court of the all-knowing judge, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Let's read our text this morning. I'm going to cover the first 11 verses, and then we'll pick up with verse 12 next time uh, that we're together. Let's begin in chapter 2 with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man? When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation 
of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Paul here wants to show us that the self-righteous are not exempt from the wrath of God. The self-righteous are not exempt from the wrath of God. The truth is that God will judge the self-righteous just as He will the pagan. That's the very first thing that he points out in verses 1-4. through God will judge the self-righteous just as He will the pagan. And the reason that He will judge them is that they are self-condemned. Now, Paul had been talking about God's righteous wrath about the pagans. That is, that these pagans clearly know that God exists because God has made Himself clear to them. It has been evident through what has been made because God has made it evident to them. And therefore, what? How does it conclude? They are without excuse. They have no excuse. But notice how he begins chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse. So, in, in chapter 1, verse 20, he said, you know that God exists, and therefore you don't have ex- an excuse when you stand before me on that final day and say, well, I never heard the Gospel. God will say, it doesn't matter. You are self-condemned because of your sin. You knew that I existed. You knew that you were resisting me. And therefore, you have no excuse. But in chapter 2, he says something very similar, but I think to a different group of people. He says, therefore, you have no excuse. And to whom is he speaking? Look at the next line. Every one of you who passes judgment. So it's not the pagans that he's talking about in chapter 1. They had no excuse. That's true. But now you, you listeners who are self-righteous, you have no excuse. And the reason I think that he's talking to now the self-righteous, which probably includes both Jews and Gentiles of his readers, is because chapter 2 is all about hypocrisy. Those who claim to know the truth and even teach that truth to others while not practicing that truth. Those who claim to know the truth and even teach people against stealing and immorality And yet, all at the same time, they're doing it. Look at verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and then do them yourself, that you will escape judgment? Skip down to verse 20. Verse 17, he says, "If If you bear the name the Jew, and then you are, verse 20, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth, You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And he goes on. Saying you're you're good at teaching other people to do it, 
but, but are you practicing those same things? The point is, is that these Jews particularly were being hypocritical in the way that they were living. And so chapter 2, now I think Paul turns the corner to, turn, to talking about pagans, now to talking to the Jews or the self-righteous Jews or even self-righteous Gentiles. He's talking to the religious who are listening in chapter 1 and saying, Yes, Paul, we do not approve of their evil deeds either. Paul here now turns the knife of the Spirit's conviction on them. And that puts these religious hearers in a precarious position. Because if they do these things, chapter 1, verse 20, they're condemned. Notice verse 32 of chapter 1. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but give hearty approval of those who practice them. So a person is condemned if they practice such evil deeds and if they approve those evil deeds. And Paul says, now I'm adding a third category of people who are condemned before God. And that is those who are self-righteous, who don't see any sin in themselves, who are constantly looking out for the sins of others and not seeing their own unworthiness, their own unrighteousness. Paul condemns the self-righteous here at the beginning of chapter 2. The self-righteous are those who hold others to a standard that they themselves are unwilling to follow. They're probably not committing the vile sins of verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1, right? That they're committing acts of homosexuality. But they probably are committing the, the sins of verses 29 through 31. Look at those. Verse 29, chapter 1, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. And then notice these gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. They may not be committing all the heinous sins, although apparently as we get into chapter 2, verse 20 and following, They are committing some of those. But they definitely are committing some of these sins of verses 30 and 31. They are like the Pharisees, the self-righteous, are like the Pharisees who look condescendingly on the sins of others, see those people that they are worthy of condemnation. Yes, God, they deserve your wrath, while at the same time ignoring the glaring sins in their own heart. That's the self-righteous. And sadly, even as Christians, we can get really good at this. We can overlook our own sins or justify them. And then when we see that very same sin in others, we think it's horrific. How could you possibly sin against God in this way? This was David. The prophet Nathan came to him and said, David, there's this man who had a huge flock, but instead of slaughtering one of his own to to eat that he could have, he slaughtered this poor man's lamb. A lamb that that poor man had cared for and all that he had. Remember David's response? Off with his head. 
right? He deserves to die. How heartless can that landowner be? And Nathan said, that's you, David. You see, when David condemned that heartless farmer, he condemned himself, didn't he? He saw what was happening as sin, but he didn't see it in himself until it was pointed out to him. Now, praise God that David repented when his sin was exposed to him. But the self-righteous in this passage here in Romans tend to ignore their own sin even when it is exposed. And the result for them will be the same as the result of the pagans in chapter 1, which is eternal condemnation. The self-righteous who do not repent because they will have no excuse. Look at verse 3 again. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You pass judgment by saying, wow, that sin is bad and that's deserving of God's condemnation while you're doing it yourself. Do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Do you think God's going to overlook that? God judges on the basis of truth. That's what verse 2 is about. God judges on the basis of truth. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. That is, this self-righteous attitude. Why do we know that God's judgment is right? It's because our condemnation of others serves as a condemnation of ourselves, of the very sins that we are committing. Consider this helpful illustration from Francis Schaeffer. He said, suppose that there was an invisible recording device that was, that was uh, hung around your neck from the time of your birth. And suppose that, that that recording device turned on every time a person made a moral judgment about another person, and then it turned right back off. So it only recorded those times when we made a moral judgment about someone else. So it would record when we would say things like, we look at someone else and say, wow, he really hates his wife. Or that was gossip. Or, you know, that person shouldn't have treated his daughter that way. That was selfish and unkind. The, the recorder uh, keeps track of all those times when we make moral judgments of what we see in someone else. And so suppose that that self-righteous person who had that invisible recording device was standing before God on the day of judgment and he made the claim before God, you can't judge me based on the law. You can't judge me on that because I didn't know about it. I didn't know what you were looking for. I didn't fully understand what you were asking. How do you suppose God would respond? Okay. You claim that you don't know what I'm looking for, so let me play back every time in your life when you made a moral judgment about someone else. And he plays them all back. You shouldn't have treated your mother that way. She needs to pay better attention in church. Those are all moral judgments that you made. And it goes on 10,000 times over. And God says, you condemn yourself on the basis of your own understanding of morality. And that's because, verses 14 and 15, that we'll see next time, is every, everybody understands in some way the difference between good and evil because God has written the law in their hearts. They have some sense of what's right and wrong. We all know this, right? 
People know that that what was done at the Holocaust was wrong. We don't have to teach them that. It's innate. And when God speaks and says, you condemned everyone else and what you did yourself was in violation of what you said was wrong. And by the way, many of those moral judgments that you made were correct according to my law. And I'm going to judge you on the basis of those. Now you're condemned. Every self-righteous person standing before God would stand silent. See, we don't argue with God's justice when we see our sin properly. When we see our sin objectively, we recognize that God is just and true. And what makes God's judgment so poignant is not just that it's fair and right, but it also is followed by mercy. And that's what verses 3 and 4 are about. God judges after He has been merciful. God judges after He's been merciful. Look at verse 3. And it comes in the form of two questions. This, this point. Do you suppose this when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Your self-righteousness, my self-righteousness, will not grant us a right standing before God. And what's further condemning to us is that God gives us time to repent. This is amazing. Consider God's long-suffering with the Canaanites. Listen to Genesis 15 Verses 13 and 16. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Abraham, I'm going to give something to you, but recognize that your descendants are not going to take it right away. It's going to be a long time before it comes. In fact, I'm going to send your descendants away. They're going to be strangers in another land, and they will be enslaved there and oppressed for 400 years And then in the fourth generation, they will finally return to the land that I told you. Why, God? Why take so long? Why put them under oppression for 400 years? Here's the answer in verse 16 of Genesis 15. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The Amorite is just another way to say people who possess that land, the promised land, the Canaanites. The iniquity, the sin of the Canaanites is not yet complete. In other words, God could have dispossessed the Canaanites from the land by destroying them and given Abraham's immediate descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, that land. He could have done that. But he said, you know what? Do you know why I'm waiting? I'm giving the Canaanites more time. Their sin's not complete yet. That is... It hasn't come to a boiling point. They're in a pot of hot water, of, of the hot water of sin, and it hasn't reached the boiling point yet. It wasn't until the time of Joshua when that second generation after Moses came that the Canaanites were finally at a point where they were steeped in idolatry, polytheism, polytheism adultery, and even the sacrifice of their own children. And then it was time. They had been given enough time to repent. Do you see what's happening here? 
God was so merciful to these wicked people, people who we would quickly condemn and send them away, that He allowed His own people, Israel, to suffer in a land that was not theirs for 430 years before He finally brought justice on the wicked Canaanites. Do you realize that unbelievers who have not repented are in hot water. But apparently, since they have not been judged yet, they haven't reached the boiling point. There will come a day when God's patience will end with them and He will judge all of His enemies. But remember, our God is slow to judge and quick to forgive. Of all people, the Canaanites deserved God's wrath immediately. And yet God was patient with them. 2 Peter 3.9 puts it this way, The Lord is not slow about His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. In verse 4 it says, Have you thought lightly, here in Romans chapter 2, have you thought lightly of the kindness of God that He's giving people time to repent? That's why He waits. The slowness of God's judgment highlights both the vileness of the offender's sin, how terrible it is that they resist God when He continues to give them opportunities to repent, and it also highlights the mercy of our holy God. In verse 4, we see that God is merciful to the self-righteous. God had been forbearing And you would think that they would have accepted God's guidance of them to Christ, that is, the Jews. But the Jews were deceived. They saw the kindness of God as a sign that they were right with God. If God's not bringing down judgment on me, immediate judgment, then He must be favorable towards what I'm doing. God's judgment came on the Gentiles in chapter 1 in terms of God giving them over to their desires, greater sins. Sometimes that's the way God judges even the self-righteous. He doesn't come down in immediate condemnation, does He? He gives them time. He doesn't come down in violent and holy wrath for all who are not in good standing with Him. God is kind in delaying to judge them in their sin so that they will have more time to repent. If He wanted to, He would be right to and just to condemn every person on the spot. But God is merciful, even to the self-righteous. The second point that Paul makes, and the final point here, is that God is blameless in His judgment of the self-righteous. God is blameless in the judgment of the self-righteous. First, God will judge the self-righteous just as He will judge the pagan, although He does give them time. Second, God is blameless in His judgment of the self-righteous, verses 5-11. through We saw that the self-righteous are self-condemned. They condemn others and therefore they condemn themselves. And we'll see that again here in verse 5 as well. But the point of this passage is that no one will escape evaluation before God. Everyone will stand before God and give an account for their deeds. Look at verse 6. God will render to each person according to their deeds. That is the point. 
God's going to hold us accountable. Not just us, but all people accountable for what they have done. Everyone will be evaluated on the basis of their works. That's what verse 6 is talking about. It comes from Psalm 62, which is there contrasting the difference between believers and unbelievers. What does that judgment look like? What, what is this judgment where God will render to each one according to his deeds? It's important that we see this in the text. It is, God will judge us on the basis of our fruit. You see that first positively in verses 7 and 10, and then negatively in verses 8 and 9. Verse 7, <clears throat> To those who, by perseverance and doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. And then verse 10, Glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. Did you notice that? So verse 7, to those who by perseverance and doing good. What's God looking at as the day of judgment? He's looking at our deeds, our fruit. Verse 10, those who do good. Everyone who He sees good fruit in, He's going to respond with reward. Verse 7, it is glory, honor, immortality, eternal life. Verse 10, it is glory, honor, and peace to the ones who do good. And then what's God going to be looking at at the time of judgment for those who bear bad fruit or or for those who are unrighteous? It is their bad fruit. Verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, that's what they'll receive. Verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. So do you see, God is judging us on the basis of our works. We can state it very simply that God will condemn those with bad fruit and He will vindicate and reward those with good fruit. God will condemn those with bad fruit. Being religious is not going to save you. Look at verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Remember, Paul here is speaking to religious people, self-righteous people. He's saying that they judge other people for their sin, and yet they are under the wrath of God. You might think that your religiosity is going to save you, but it won't. Because hell will be full of religious people. The point is not that Paul is looking for perfect Christians. You know, we might think, well, God is going to judge us on the basis of our works, so how's that going to help? I mean, I've got all sorts of sin in my life, even as a Christian. We've even prayed to God and asked for forgiveness of our sins this morning in the service. The point is not that Paul is looking for perfect Christians, but listen to this, Christians who acknowledge their sins. Here's the difference between whom God will judge and whom God will will justify on that final day. It is, God will judge those who are, look at verse 5, stubborn and unrepentant. And God will justify those who acknowledge their sin for what it is and turn from it. God's wrath is being stored up for those who sin and those who fail to repent. That is, those who sin while failing to repent. 
God's not talking about storing up wrath for disciples who fall into sin like Peter did on occasion. He's talking about those who willfully abandon the faith like Judas and show it with their fruit. We're going to see at the end of chapter 2 that the Jews relied on their law with God and their covenant with God and they think that that's going to give them a direct line of favor to God. That is, that that their ethnicity demanded that God show favor to them. And God's saying, no, I'm not going to judge you on the basis of your ethnicity or the covenant I've made with you. I'm judging you on the basis of your works. Paul further illustrates the point from verse 5 in verses 9 and 11 that, that God will judge on the basis of works. In verses 9 and 11, Paul repeats the consequences that will come from both the believer and the unbeliever. There's no favoritism with Jew or Gentile in the sense that there'll be both, both kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, will be condemned by God. The only favoritism that there is with God is that the Jews will be judged first because they were given the truth first. God will judge those with bad fruit, but God will vindicate those with good fruit. Now, I I want to be clear here because you might already have taken an exit ramp here. Stay with me. We're not talking about earning salvation. Okay, It's important that we get when the works come. The works do not earn us God's favor. That's what the Jews... That's the very problem, by the way. They think that their external conformity is going to get them some kind of favor with God. And God's saying, no, this is the fruit of your salvation. It's perseverance, verse 7. It's perseverance in doing good. It's not just doing good in order to get a good standing with the people that are watching or get a good standing with God for a short period of time and then I'm going to fall off and do whatever I want. It is perseverance in doing good works. Paul's not teaching justification by works. That's the whole point of chapters 1 through 3. We cannot be justified by works. But our works will necessarily come as a fruit, as the fruit, by which we can be shown to be genuine or to be a fraud. No person can be accepted solely on the basis of their work, but every believer will have works as a fruit. That is, good works. Because God made us for that purpose. Ephesians 2.10 We were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So it's not surprising that on Judgment Day, God's going to say, let's see them. Let's see your good works. Now here's the kicker. We're thinking works like external. Like if we had some humans that were determining, okay, you got some pretty good works, you got some pretty good works, you guys all come over here, you're all good. Here's the thing. God judges the thoughts and the intents of the hearts as well. So it's not just about external conformity. It's about a changed heart. That only can come from the power of the Spirit. That's why we know if those works are real, that if they're genuine. That's why God knows. Because it's the works that are done as God has set them to do them and they're done from a good heart which only can come from the soil of God's Spirit. 
we will not be accepted. That is, we'll not be justified. Our salvation doesn't come on the basis of our works. Our salvation comes, our justification comes on the basis of Jesus' work, of His finished work. We are saved by faith. But, remember what it says, the righteous man by faith shall live. That's the idea of that phrase. The one who is righteous by faith will live. He will actually have good works. He will receive eternal life. In verse 11 of chapter 2, we see that God is the righteous judge. There is no partiality with God. Or as the KJV says, God is no respecter of persons. That is, He treats all those who oppose Him with judgment or with mercy. Those who reject Him will be judged. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, he's not a, He doesn't show partiality in that way. Oh, well, you're a Jew? He rejected me? Well, at least you're a Jew. Come on in. No. Did you reject me or didn't you? Did you accept me? The same thing is true on the other side. Those who receive His gift of grace will be justified. Jew or Gentile. He's not going to show partiality in that way. And therefore, the call for each one of us today is that we must repent. We, we cannot be the self-righteous. Let me leave you with four principles this morning. Four points of application as we conclude. Number one, beware of self-righteousness. Beware of self-righteousness. We love to get excited about condemning the sins of others, like when we're looking at chapter one. You mean, mention the words homosexuality, abortion, flag burning, ISIS, murder, immorality, and you can get a rise out of Christians not hard to do. And while we love to speak out against the terrible atrocities in the world and in our nation, at the same time we ignore the atrocities that are bubbling over from our own hearts. Sure, we've never killed anyone or acted out as vilely as some of the pagans in our culture or what's listed here in in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We've never done any of those things. But do our deeds come from a heart that's been changed by the Holy Spirit? Are our works acceptable before God? Or does our religiosity betray our creed of faithfulness? Does our home life reflect that we actually what we actually hate in other people? You know, we, we see someone else doing something and their home life is like, wow, that's terrible. And yet at the same time, we're doing it ourselves. We need to guard ourselves against self-righteousness. What about our church? Sure, we hate the sins of society, but have we slipped to Pharisaism in our own church? We might be a little bit less discreet about our sins. We don't publicly approve the sins of the godly, ungodly, but... You know, secretly we watch programs that elicit pleasure when we see people commit those sins. And we say out loud because other people are there, oh, how terrible this TV show or this documentary or this movie is. While at the same time we enjoy that little morsel of immorality that was portrayed on screen. Friends, the reality of self-righteousness sprouting in the hearts of each one of us is very real. 
And if we are not working to rid ourselves of it, then we are in great danger. How do we do that? How do we guard ourselves against self-righteousness? How do we beware of it? I think we do that in three ways. And here's point number two. Evaluate your own heart. Evaluate your own heart. How can I know if I am part of what Paul is addressing here in chapter 2? Am I a religious unbeliever? Am I a Baptist who's headed to hell? The answer depends on your view of sin. Do you look at others and condemn them without seeing any resemblance of it in your own heart? Do you ignore the sins that are clear to others because they're done by you? The answer to whether you're a religious unbeliever or not depends on how you respond to the Gospel. Do you think that being accepted by God can happen apart from Christ? Can you make it on your own merits? Can you be righteous enough on your own to be accepted before God? Because you can't. It's what the Bible teaches, what Paul teaches here. You must believe in Jesus Christ. So evaluate your own heart. That's how you guard against self-righteousness. Secondly, and application number three, guard against self-deception. The nature of deception is that we can participate in a sin that is clearly in violation of God, justify that sin in our own minds, and then, almost with the same breath, condemn someone else who does the same sin and not even know it. Not even know that we just condemn someone else while ignoring the sin that we just did. That's what David did, right? He didn't see that he had committed that sin himself. And that's a dangerous place to be. So if your theology gives you an excuse for your sin, if your theology gives you an excuse to not live by faith, but rather by presumption, that you presume that, hey, I can continue on in this sin and it's not going to burn me. I can jump off the peak of the temple and God will catch me. Do you know why? Because I've done it before. So I can jump into sin as much as I want and God's going to rescue me because He keeps doing it. Who are we to tempt God? Let me remind you again of the importance of a Bible-believing local church where you can hold other people accountable to what you have mutually agreed to believe as a church. And also where you can be a part of a group of people where you can develop some close enough relationships that allow them to see you well enough to know if there is sin that's being ignored. Do you go to a church? You go to this church, slip in, slip out, don't build relationships, then you can be self-deceived about your sin. You need to develop godly relationships within the context of people who have committed themselves to Christ. 
if we're going to avoid self-righteousness, self-deception, we need to be held accountable by people who love God and love us. And then, when that sin is exposed, we need to be humble enough to accept correction. One of the hardest things to do to accept correction. But that's what the wise person does, as we learned in Vacation Bible School a couple weeks ago. The wise person is willing to listen and to obey. Even when the person comes with the wrong presentation. You know, they they don't do it in the right spirit. They kind of just throw it out there or do it in a rude way. If we can't accept correction even from people who don't do it the right way, And that says a lot about our hearts, doesn't it? Number four, we need to guard against this self-righteousness. Unrepentant self-righteousness will lead to final condemnation. So be willing to accept rebuke and correction. Ask God to expose your sin. When's the last time that you've done that? God, will you show me where I have sinned? Reveal it to me in some way. Show it to me in your word. Direct somebody to be willing enough to confront me with the sin that I've been ignoring. That is a healthy prayer to pray. And then when God does do that, deal with it. Deal with it before God. God, I have sinned against you. It has been clear that what I have done is opposed to what you have told me. And here's where you tell me to do it. I, I'm, I'm talking to you, God, back from your word. This is where you said it's wrong. And I've ignored that. And I need your cleansing power. And I need, I need you to change me. That's what healthy Christians do. Friends, no one is exempt from the wrath of God because of their unrepentant sin. God will render to each person according to his deeds. So, bear good fruit. Bear good fruit. That doesn't happen by faking it. Stapling fruit to a tree is not going to get past the all-seeing eyes of God. He knows when it's fake. The way that you bear fruit by attaching yourself to the vine. Attach yourself to Jesus Christ and you will bear fruit. Friends, judgment is coming. And God is not impartial. He's not going to say, you know what? You did come to church this many times and that's, that's something to be, there's something to be said about that. You know, you did give this amount of money over the course of your life to a good church. God's not going to be impartial when it comes to your evaluation So make sure that you have a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. It's the only way to escape. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that You have not saved us simply to coast, kind of be carried on to the clouds on flowery beds of ease. Lord, You have saved us to do good works to be changed. So why would we expect that we can just ignore our sin? Go on living, unrepenting, uh, and with an unrepentant heart. 
Lord, reveal to us where we have sinned individually. Reveal to us as a church where we have sinned and where we need to change. Lord, expose to us what is true and what is right and give us clear steps that we can take of correction. So we want to repent. We want to be like David and acknowledge our sin before You so that we can be restored. Lord, we know that as Christians, we cannot be abandoned by You. You will never forsake us. Lord, I pray that there is no one here that is self-deceived. Please, Lord, show us who we are and help us to be people who are repenting, quick to bring our sins before You so that we can so that we can walk sweetly with You and also so that we can approach others who need to have their sin exposed. And it's so hard, if not impossible, to do when we are full of sin ourselves. So Lord, change us this morning. Refine us. In Jesus' name, Amen.